From the prophet Isaiah, chapter 50, beginning in verse 4. The Lord has given me a tongue of a teacher, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Morning by morning he wakens, wakens my ear, to listen as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backwards, but gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. It is the Lord God who helps me, who will, de who will declare me guilty. The word of the Lord. From the epistle of James, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it takes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Will you all stand for our gospel reading? The gospel according to Mark beginning with verse 27 of chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do the people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, What do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about, this, about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his full glory with the holy angels. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Will you join me in prayer? God, grant us the wisdom to pause, to breathe in the gift of life you've given us, to tell our stories bravely and live into them. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. What does it say that the epistle reading on the Sunday when I happen to preach says, your tongue is a, will set your whole life on fire, and if you teach, you're going to be judged. <laughs> uh, no pressure, I guess. I had lunch with Preston on Wednesday, and he told me his, his grandfather died. Um, and then Thursday, when I got home, I realized that he sent me a text asking me to preach. So yesterday, I read the scripture for the first time, and uh, at about nine o'clock, I finished this sermon this morning. So hopefully um, we can have a time where we can live into this new uh, series of sermons that Preston is, is called Being a People. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about what it would be mean to be a confessing people. And I want to start by recognizing that this is a difficult thing to do, to, to confess, unless you're usher and you make like millions of dollars off of like, the, what, two songs? <laughs> about being con confessing to infidelity and having a kid by another woman. And um, for me, you know, I was going to start by like doing the I'm a little teapot thing, but I was way too like lack lacking of self-confidence to be able to even make that kind of confession in front of you all. Um, but it's even harder to like make a confession about like an indiscretion or even like what you believe. It takes conviction and it takes um, a strong sense of self. And... That's hard for a lot of people. It's hard for, I would say, a lot of people, um, young people especially. Uh, in a little bit, I want to look a little bit about it, at our, our development. But for many people, maybe in my generation, um, it's hard to come to a church on Sunday and to say, this is what I believe, when so much of what we, are, we believe has been co-opted by various political institutions. It's very hard to come to church on Sunday knowing both sides of, of the political spectrum make just outrageous and terrifying things in the name of Christianity or against Christianity, whether it's um, saying horrible things about people or various populations or from the other side saying that Christians are just narrow-minded or fools. Um, it makes it tough to come to a church to say that you're a Christian, to leave that church and to go into the streets of such a diverse place such as Nashville and say, I, you know, I, I'm living into what it means to be a follower of Jesus because um, that meaning is so contested. And so 
today I want to talk about confession as something that, even though it's very hard, is an essential thing. Not just essential in the church, but essential as a person. So I want to start today with some kind of heady stuff, but my sense is several of you will know what I'm talking about and will have looked through this before. Um, I want to start by saying that confession, being a confessing people, um, confession is an essential human task. So what I mean by this is as we go through the course of our lives, through the course of how we become ourselves as people, there comes a point in our life where we have to learn to take ownership in who we are as people, what we have done, where we have come from, and, and it's with that knowledge and that self-understanding that we can better understand the trajectory of where our life is going into the future. So um, we could talk about this from a bunch of different places, but I'm going to talk about Eric Erickson for a second. This is a psychologist, has theories of, of psychosocial development. Um, I imagine some of you know this, and I'm going to try to not butcher it. Um, at least the first six, I'm not going to talk about the last two. Um, the first stage um, of, of psychosocial development, the first stage of how we got to where we are today, here on September 16th, 2018, way back when we were babies, up until about a year and a half old, we learned from our parents what it means to trust or mistrust people. It's the very foundation of how we live and, and move in the world. So no pressure, um, but your baby is learning whether they can trust people for the rest of their lives. Good luck, Willow. From a year and a half to three years old, uh, uh, infants, babies, they start, um, you know, they start moving around more. They start interacting with other people for the first time. And it's at that stage in their life they learn a little bit about what it means to be autonomous and to do things for themselves. And if they're not learning how to feed themselves for the first time, holding the bottles or you know, eating those little cereal puffs or um, I don't know, I don't have a kid yet. Um, learning how to start clothing yourself and understanding you need to protect yourself with clothing when you go out. If they don't learn those things, then they start taking on some shame. They, they start recognizing that something about them is not living up to the standards that other, their peers their age are, are living into. So this is where we first start as, as, as people, start learning um, the awful curse of comparison that's going to live with us for the rest of our lives. Um, we, we've, we've learned, hopefully, we can trust other people, but now we're learning that some people have better giftedness than we do. And for, for some kids, if they can't learn some sense of autonomy about that, they can start doubting themselves even, even before they're three years old, start taking on shame. Up in, from three to five, um, this is where kids um, start entering into like, more social conventions like school. Um, this is where they learn to take on initiative. If they learn how to start and finish tasks on their own, um, whether that's assignments or whether that's play, um, it doesn't have to be work or play. It can, it can be just um, a creative process. If they start falling behind in those areas, whether because of something going on inside them internally or whether they have some kind of disability, um, what happens is, is they start feeling guilty. Like something about them is... Um, not good enough. Um, and um, that kind of leads to the next stage and everything kind of starts snowballing, you know. It starts from trust and mistrust, goes in through shame and doubt or autonomy into this initiative guilt phase. And then from five all the way through mid-adolescence, so a whole bulk of your childhood, we learn what it means to work and to 
um, succeed or fail. It means how do we continue in our life knowing that we are not going to do everything that we hope to do um, without letting that put us into this sense that somehow we are less, that, that we are somehow inferior. And the next stage um, builds on top of that, where we start coming into our identity. If we, if we can, this is as much a, you know, a sexual development as it is a human development. If, if we've started to, to come into this place where um, we feel inferior because we're not able to, to live up to the standards of others, we don't have a real sense of who we are as people, whether we've not been confirmed by like people we look up to. We've not been confirmed by mentors or peers. We haven't had a sense of affirmation in our lives. Um, we haven't been told, you know, we're good, that we're loved. Um, this is a, a more complex thing, and this is as much about our own uh, uh, mental development as is our, our personal development. And lastly, and this is the, the part I want to spend the rest of my time talking about today, um, because I think this is the first out of all these series that... Um, one, it, it comes back to our, sense, our, our topic of confession. But it also is something that um, I think a lot of our congregation is in, but also is a part of life um, throughout adulthood. And that's the, the, the coming into a place of either intimacy or isolation, of coming into community, of coming into to people who have our backs, to people that, you know, starting way early about trust, but have now come into a sense of mutual relationship where we're giving and receiving fairly from one another. I think, you know, so the next two stages are, are very, very important, um, but I want to start, I want to focus here because I think it's the most contingent on our ability to have some sense of self and then be able to confess that sense of self to others. So, The first time I remember learning, <laughs> not the first time, but the first time it really kind of sunk into me what it meant to be like intimate with someone was not when I got married, which happened when I was 20 because we got married when we were very young. Um, I came to Vanderbilt for the first time. We lived from, we grew up in Indiana and we moved, you know, four hours away to, to Nashville. Didn't really know anybody. My first semester here, I was surrounded by a bunch of really smart people and I was learning a lot of stuff, working on my master's of divinity. And uh, there's this woman named A.J. Levine, who is a New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt. She's like one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, there's, you know, those people that are like, they have a conversation that you just feel like you understand everything that they said, but... They arrived at all their conclusions so fast that you're not really sure what, how they got to. There's another woman I was with the other day. She's the, director of, the medical director of the department I'm in. I was having this conversation that I could barely understand, and we walked into a patient room, and I realized that she was speaking Spanish to uh, the patient because the patient spoke Spanish, and I suddenly uh, didn't realize I had no, no way of participating in the conversation anymore. I think, I think AJ is very, very similar to that. Um, she was talking about the creation story. So AJ is a New Testament scholar. But she was talking about um, the creation story um, and about kind of how like funny children's images paint the Garden of Eden. So like there's always like Eve's hair is like conveniently down the front of her chest or she's standing behind a leaf and like Adam doesn't have legs. Like he's got bushes in front of him the whole time. There's nothing there. And, and, and AJ said, you know, this is um, uh, the, the, the Eve, the Garden of Eden is a perfect um, allegory for what it means to be intimate with someone until you're able to stand right in front of someone, all laid bare, able to look them in the eye and feel accepted and loved and accept and love another person. 
you'll never know what it really means um, to be intimate, or you'll never, you're missing a central part of, of human community. And that asks something of you. That asks you to present yourself fully and completely to another person. It asks you to lay bare everything that you have physically, but also emotionally and spiritually and, and, and verbally by mouth. It's asking you to confess who you are. Now Erickson says, you know, intimacy is an essential part of human, uh, human development. I think there's a, a millions of different social psychologists, different people who are gonna tell you that being in community is kind of an essential human task. You know, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy, it's, it's on there. Um, but I think what I wanna talk about today is that if we cannot learn to tell our own stories, faults and all, both to God and to other people, then we're missing out on what it means to be human. What it means to be a person who lives in a diverse community of people who experience things in different ways. And what it means to love your neighbor as yourself because I don't know that you really have got to the place where you're loving yourself. And so I start today by saying, you know, I was going to rehash all of the development and why if you don't get trust first, it's not going to work. But I think I've made the point. Confession is the way in which we become and come into a community of people. It's the way in which we can come together gathered. It's the way in which we can come together husband and wife, or if you're not partnered, um, it's a way in which you come into a sense of camaraderie and companionship with other people. Um, maybe not in the same way as marriage, but certainly in, in similarly affirming ways. So the second thing I want to talk about is I want to relate this confession as an essential human thing, as an essential human task, back to what we read today in Mark. Because I think, not I think, this is the very first time in Jesus' ministry through the book of Mark that someone has said, you're the Messiah. This is a confession of a different kind. It's a confession of faith, which is different than a confession of self. Very related. So Peter, um, who is a, you know, up and down kind of guy, if, if you read the New Testament, um, he's seen a lot from Jesus through the book of Mark. Just by a very brief survey this morning, literally this morning, Jesus has healed a blind man, released a demon from, this, uh, from someone. Uh, I didn't type this very well. He is, uh, last week when we talked about with the Syrophoenician woman, he's, he's helped her daughter. He's fed 4,000 people. He's walked on water. He's fed another 5,000 people. He's raised a dead girl to life. He's healed a sick woman. He's restored a demon-possessed man. He calmed a storm. He healed on the, ha- on the Sabbath. He forgave sins. He's healed a paralytic, another man with leprosy, a man possessed, and many others. And he spent a whole lot of time talking about a whole bunch of nonsense that they barely understood called faith. Peter's seen a lot. By this point in time, he's kind of got it figured out. There's something special about Jesus. There's something special about this person. And Jesus is testing these folks. He's saying, you are my closest people in the whole world. You are the people that I have spread myself open to in ways um, that I will eventually for everyone else, but in ways that no one else understands. And he says, who do you think that I am? And Peter almost, almost gets to what intimacy is. He almost gets there. He correctly realizes Jesus is the Messiah 
but he misses a small part of it. He misses a small part of, of what it would mean to like fully um, appreciate the intimacy of, the, of what Jesus is asking. He says, um, you're, you're the... Um, You are the Messiah. And Jesus is like, okay, don't tell anyone. Um, And then he says a little bit more about, like, so you think I'm the Messiah? Well, I'm going to have to be suffered a lot of stuff. People are going to persecute me. I'm going to die. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And Peter's like, hold on, Jesus. That's not what the Messiah means. So, Peter says to Jesus, hold on, that's not what it means to be Messiah. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. You have no idea what I'm talking about. So what's happening here is that confession is more than words. Confession also requires an action. It requires receiving another person completely and fully. It requires to, to confess your whole self and all that you are, you are opening yourself up in trust to something beyond you. Something that's transcending what it means to be you. That's where grace happens. That's where healing happens in our lives. When we're able to completely open up to something beyond us and receive that other, that's where we come into better understanding of who we are. So Peter got half of that. He said, you know, I'm, making, I'm going out on a limb. I think you're the Messiah. However, he did not trust Jesus' response enough to let Jesus dictate a version of the Messiah that would be different than what he had in his little brain, which Peter's a smart guy. I shouldn't say a small, a small brain. but So confession is always more than words. Throughout, um, throughout human history, it's more than words. It's more, as I've said about kind of intimacy, it's, it's giving and receiving of other stuff. But it's also that, that same idea is replicated over and over again in the, New, in the Old and New Testament. Um, it's as much a confession of faith. I believe, you know, we're here in a little bit, we're going to uh, do the Apostles' Creed. That's as much about a confession of faith as it is a, a confession of sin, which is how we start every single Sunday in gathering together. And, and, and the Old Te- in the Old Testament, the schema, which is like, um, it's the central component of Jewish faith. It's the central idea of what it means to, to, to be a practicing Jew. Um, it's from Deuteronomy chapter six. It starts with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a confession of what they believe is most central about their faith, which is why I don't want to do a Preston. He gets in this mode where he's like looking down and he's thinking about a million different things. You know, I kind of think that I do that sometimes too, but um, this is why Jewish people are different than Christian people because they can't reconcile that Jesus is both God and then the God is one at the same time. Um, And that's a pretty representation of Judaism, but that's what I'm going to say. But this central, this first confession of faith that happens in the schema, or the shema, I don't have a good ha noise. Um, it doesn't stop with, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It continues. It says, words confess, then actions. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. It goes on. It says, impress on your ch- impress this onto your children. Talk about this when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. Tie it as symbols to your hands and bind them to your forehead. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is not just saying a word. It's living a lifestyle that reflects the words that you're saying. 
That's how community happens. You can't just say things like you do on Twitter and expect to actually have a relationship with people. So confession happens in two forms, both words and actions. This is again, um, Joshua. So at the end of um, the, the, uh, the story of the Israelites coming into the promised land, um, they've spent years in Egypt, they've done a whole lot of stuff. And then what happens from there is they have um, kind of finally started to settle this kingdom. And Joshua, he's, become the, he's gathers all the leaders up of Israel and, he, and he, he has them come together and he says, listen, this is what we believe. And he recites the, the story of, of, of their faith throughout um, the Old Testament. He says, you know, the God of Israel brought us uh, together under Abraham. He uh, led us into Egypt. He brought us out of Egypt in the Red Sea. He led us into this promised land and he's helped us as, as we've come into some adversarial relationships with these other people. He says, this is what we believe. And he goes on to say, revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. So he says, a confession, this is what we believe. And then he says, in order to continue with that confession, we have to act on it, revere the Lord. This is the same story over and over again about giving of yourself and then acting on what happens after you do that. And so we see this in Mark. We see this with Peter. We see him getting half of that, getting the part that says, acting on the statement, you are the Messiah, or saying the statement, you are the Messiah. But we don't see is Jesus or is in Peter is his willingness to understand, and this is maybe not all of his fault. Maybe he didn't quite understand what was to come. But what happens in a confession as, as a Christian is an obligation to the way of the cross. It's a very hard thing. So one, it takes bravery to be able to say that you're a Christian, and it takes even more bravery to be able to answer up to what Jesus says here in Mark. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever lives their life for me in the gospel will save it. Confession is both giving and then acting on that givenness. So I talked about this earlier as, um, as confession kind of being the, the beginning of what it means to be in community with other people. Um, it takes being fully present, fully in mutual relationships for, for real things to happen. And so this is also what happens here every single Sunday. It happens in, in churches across the world. This is what it means to, you know, we call ourselves sacrament church. This is what happens every time we inhabit those sacraments, whether you know, here we, we, we practice both um, baptism, though we don't do that very frequently, and also Holy Communion. We say that sacraments are the point at which heaven and earth, God and humanity come together. Which is why before we start and enter into that relationship with God, we start with a time of confession. Every Sunday, we say, um, we've not loved you with our whole, whole hearts. Forgive us. 
For the sake of thy son, Jesus, forgive us. Because what we're saying here is that we want to be completely and fully in all our, you know, beautifulness, but also in our messed upness, present to God in a way that he will then mirror in relationship to us in both baptism and communion. So we say with confessions that fully leaning into communion with God and following through in that community, in that communion, by trusting and listening to God's desires for our life is the entirety of what it means to be a Christian. Confession, I started by saying, was an essential human task. It's the essential part that helps us be people. It's also the central task of what it means to say that Jesus is Messiah and to follow on his teachings. So I want to come back to where we started. This is all very hard. It takes a lot of courage to do this. And... I don't want to get too far away from that. Because every single day when I'm working at the hospital, I see people who are very struggling to understand what it means to have faith and to be in the presence of evil in the world, be in the presence of sickness in their lives. So the last point I want to make, and the reason why I want us to try to persevere in trying to learn to, to be in communion with other people because that's really what this is all about. That's really what confession is for. Is that Christian community properly committed to confession is a place of affirmation and grace unlike anything else in the world. It's the reason why we're here. There's a philosopher, a theologian, this, this, this um, Jewish guy lived uh, during the Holocaust named Emmanuel Levinas. Um, I think the reason why I'm a minister is because I read Emmanuel Levinas. It's not very easy to understand. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> uh, but he has this, this story, uh, not a story, he has a kind of essential principle that says, um, the moment we come in eye contact with another person, the moment we make eye contact with another person, we are under a moral obligation to that person. The moment we open ourselves up and see someone else, uh, fully eye contact, there is something, there's a demand that's placed on us. A demand that must be filled by both compassion and grace. A demand where we are in this together. It's what I say every day when I'm driving to work. We're all in this together. Even though I hate all these other cars, we're all in this together. Levinas says that for us to exist in the world is to be at the beginning of the type of intimate connections that I talked about with confession. Every single moment of every single day where we're seeing another person is, a, is not only an opportunity, it's a demand placed on us where we have some obligation to, to, to that other person. It's hard to live up to that all the time. It's impossible to live up that all the, all, all the time. That's why I'm a Christian. That's why I'm here filling in for our pastor today. Because what it means to be a Christian is that we'll, though we might not have the answers, we are committed to working towards them. We are committed to acting on that demand placed on our hearts, acting on the demand of, of eye-to-eye contact. Or you could just never make eye contact with people. I mean, you could live that way if you wanted. 
So what I want to say today is that our church, Sacrament, is an example community. It's not perfect, but it's a place filled with grace where we can lean on and accept other people. MLK has a a quote about this. He calls it the beloved community. The goal of the beloved community, he says, is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of a full beloved community. It's a type of spirit and this love, this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. Type of love, it's not eros or romantic love, not philia, reciprocal love, but it's agape. It's an understanding of goodwill for all men. It's an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. It's a love of God working in the lives of people. And it is the love that may well be the salvation of our civilization. I have felt that. I felt it here. I felt it in other ways. No, it's already 11. I felt it um, this last year. So the kind of... the kind of central story in my life um, was that my brother died in January. Um, he was a couple years younger than me. He was in the Army. He was a helicopter pilot, and his helicopter crashed in a training mission in California. And what I learned in that was that sometimes in life you receive gifts you never really wanted to receive. Um, that you have to completely make room for in your life and completely try to figure out what life means afterwards. I think those kind of gifts teach you what it means to be fully accepted by someone, to be fully loved, to have hope for yourself and for another. I felt that um, in my home community, by people I never met, people I'll never know again, Um, I felt that by some of you. I felt that um, as a parable of what it means to be in the beloved community of Christ. I think what I hope is for us at Sacrament um, that we're a community committed to giving and receiving our complete selves to others. Even when we don't have the answers, we're at least committed to trying. We're committed to lifting each other up in prayer, like our pastor today. We're a community, um, if confession is the beginning of, of that community, the end of it is just complete sharing of stories, sharing of self, giving of self, receiving of, of, of love. Most importantly, we would be a community of listening. Because that's what it means to take up the cross means that you're carrying something else with you, someone else with you, and you're holding those people in your heart. So today I want to end with a blessing that may we each live into a faith that empowers us to share our own stories fully and completely. We might take up our crosses, care for other people. And in this way, we'll find the love that'll be the salvation of our civilization. Amen.